Okay, so our passage this morning, and really all of chapter 12 before it, is bathed in the light of the Lord's return. There will come a day, the passage says, when what is covered up will be revealed, when what is hidden will be made known, and when what is said in the dark will be heard in the light. Hypocrites will be exposed, and the sincere will be vindicated. There will come a day, the passage says, when all mankind will stand before the Son of Man. Those who confessed Him, He will confess. Those who denied Him, He will deny. There will come a day, the passage says, when the kingdom of God arrives. Those who have lived self-indulgently in utter disregard for the poor will be made poor. And those who shared their goods will be made rich. On that day, the Holy Scripture says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. As C.S. Lewis puts it, In the end, that face, which is the delight and terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. In light of that day, when each one of us stands before the delight and terror of the universe, we are commanded, be ready. Very simply then, such readiness is the aim of our passage this morning. We are all hurtling toward that day. We're all waiting, moving toward that destiny. Therefore, we must be prepared to stand confidently and unashamedly before the revealing eyes of Christ. And this passage teaches us how to do just that. First, let's take a look at the parable the Lord uses. In verse 36, he says, Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. And then again in verse 42, the Lord says, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Now in both examples, the general situation is the same. The master or owner of the estate leaves on a journey to a wedding feast or to some other business. And while he is away, he leaves his slaves and stewards in charge of his estate. They're responsible for overseeing the property. But what the master expects, regardless of when he returns, is to find his slaves occupied with the work that he has given them to do. Now, it's fairly straightforward to see how the Lord's parable maps onto reality. The master has come. Jesus has come from heaven to earth And he purchased the church with his own blood. And while he's away at the right hand of the Father, he has committed his estate to us. He wants 
to see, he, what he wants to see is that we have been faithful and wise with his property when he returns. Thus, the Lord tells us, be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. What the Lord expects of us is preparedness. That when he comes, he will not have to wait at the door while we rise from sleep and then light the house, but rather that as soon as he knocks, our hand will have already been at the door waiting to open for him. Now, in its most specific sense, the Lord's parable refers to the leaders of the church, elders and deacons. We all have our part of the estate to maintain, to be sure, but elders and deacons are given a unique responsibility to oversee the estate, as the Lord hints. Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? He's speaking of a steward who oversees the other um, servants in the household. Elders specifically and deacons under their direction ensure that the other servants are given their rations and kept healthy. However, in the parable's broadest sense, it refers to all of us. The master has committed the care of his estate to every one of his slaves. Though you may not occupy an official position within the church, you do possess spiritual gifts, unique experiences, and a particular bent given that you might carry out the work assigned to you. The estate, that is the church, is too large and too sprawling for merely the elders and the deacons to care for it. Rather, it requires the cooperation and the commitment of every one of the master's slaves. As the Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, to each one, to each one, every one of us is given the manifestation of the Spirit. In other words, a gift of the Spirit for the common good. We all have something to bring to the table. Thus, each one of us has our work to do within the Lord's estate. To one, it is given to serve in the kitchen. To another, to tend to the garden to another to teach the children, to another to care for the animals, and so on and so on. And if you shudder at the prospect of teaching the children, then most likely that duty is not for you. There's another place on the property that suits you. The master's estate has many opportunities for service. And it's inconceivable to think that there isn't a place that suits each one of us. Again, one will despair at the thought of overseeing the estate finances, but another person finds fulfillment in that very thing. One would rather die than labor in the kitchen, but another daydreams about such a thing. The Lord has prepared an avenue of service within His estate suited to each of us. And when each one diligently attends to their particular part of the estate, the whole estate is beautified and pleasing to the master. Each one, remember as Paul said, is working for the common good. So the master hears reports from afar that his servants are not only maintaining his property, but increasing it. 
acres are being added to him by the day. A new wing of the mansion is being built to house the extra servants. People are coming from far and wide to behold the property's beauty. The master is the envy of the nations, and he is glorified in his servants. And such is the opportunity before us. Each one of us, again, I want to repeat and make as clear as possible, has been given talents and skills to employ within the church. You can meet a need, occupy a role, fulfill a ministry that no one else in the body can. Without you, your particular gifting, and your particular disposition, the Master's people will suffer want. But with you, your skills and talents and everything that you bring to the table, the master's people are built up and they grow into the stature of Christ. But one will say, I don't know my gift. That's fine. Oftentimes the Spirit's gifts are buried deep within. They are not what we would expect them to be or not what people naturally see in us. The discovery of one's gift is a process. And it's not the same for everyone. The moment I became a Christian, I was given an inexplicable love for the church. I just wanted to be there. I just wanted to be around the building even. And as I began to put feet to that love, I began to find my path. The Lord directed me toward my calling. Therefore, for you, it might be the smallest intuition or even someone's offhand comment. But don't be afraid to pursue those slightest of leads because in the end, as you discover your gift, what matters is not that you know it, but that you have a heart to serve. And if you have a heart to serve, if you are not afraid to put yourself out there, sooner or later, you will find your duty on the master's estate. You'll try different things out and you'll find eventually, this is what works for me. But still another will say, I know my gift, but there's no place in CBC to use it. And to that we'd say, if there is no place, make one. Start seeking, asking, and knocking, and soon enough the Lord will direct you to the right door. Indeed, there may be already a need, maybe you just don't see it. And as you start poking around, as you start pulling on threads and filling out different opportunities, you'll find that it's been right in front of you all along. And if there is a genuine desire to serve, and you're not merely using that as an excuse, come to the elders. We will pray and fast with you, asking the Lord to direct your steps. A few have already done such a thing, and they're well on their way. And if it's a matter of getting equipped, of course, that's what the church is here to help for. What do you need? Education? We can help you with that. Supplies? No problem. Connections? We can do all that. Your place on the master's estate may not be revealed overnight, but it never will unless you get moving, unless you start putting feet to your desire to serve. And the bottom line is that we must remember we are not our own. Our lives, our resources, our gifts and talents are the master's. He has given them to us, not that we may fatten ourselves on them or bury them in the sand, but rather that we might marshal them in His service. 
and being that all we have, and indeed all we are, is God's, he will demand an accounting from us. As we said earlier, one day he will return. The Lord Jesus will come and we will have to answer for how we spent our days. Whether or not we used our gifts for the betterment of our brothers and sisters or not. So this leads us to our next area of consideration in our passage this morning. It's going to be a long train. Bear with me, guys. Verse 40. It says, You too, be ready. Okay. It says, You too, be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Then again, verse 46 the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know. Again, much the same idea is communicated in verse 38. In verse 38, the Lord says, when he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. And again, verse 45, but if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The Lord will come, but when? Of course, no mortal can say. And the consistent theme of the Lord's words that we just read is the unexpectedness and the suddenness of His return. It will be at an hour that we do not know, possibly in the second or the third watch of the night, maybe even in broad daylight. The only certainty we have is that the Lord will return when we do not expect Him and in a long time coming. Now, in response to the uncertainty of the Lord's return, we can respond in one of two ways, negligence or diligence. Self-indulgence or preparedness. Now the way of negligence and self-indulgence begins with an easygoing attitude toward the Lord's return. The slave of Jesus' parable says to himself, My master will be a long time in coming. In other words, I've got time. There's no need to overdo it right now. I might as well relax and enjoy myself for a little bit. The slave puts off his responsibilities, and as a, as a direct result, the Lord says, he begins to beat the slaves and to eat and to drink and get drunk. His laziness and nonchalant attitude quickly gave way to self-indulgence and wickedness. But little does that slave know, the master will come on a day when he does not expect him, and an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with unbelievers. The slave's harmless nap turned into a deep sleep. And when he awoke, he found out it was too late. Now, the warning of the parable jumps off at the page at us. 
How often do we struggle, like the slave, to take seriously our master's return? His return, the consummation of the kingdom, the day of judgment seem to our senses like far away things, almost fables that we tell ourselves. We might believe them in theory and on paper, but in everyday life they fail to move us. Instead, the affairs of life clamor for and encompass our field of vision. Caught up in the incessant news cycle, the relentless stream of social media, and the otherwise harmless affairs of life, our hearts are weighed down by a worldliness that we cannot rise above. Thus, like the slave of Jesus' parable and the rich man before him, our lives become patterned after the course of this world. We lose our vision for eternal things, and then we begin to live in a temporal manner. We sleep, as it were, through months, years, and even decades of our lives while the purpose of God passes us by. And though most of us will not fall into the blatant disobedience that the slave did, we will find ourselves more or less unconcerned and unfeeling toward the truth, the Holy Spirit, and things eternal. In short, we will become sluggards. Indeed, some may be in that place now. Your ears are deaf and your heart has become hardened toward God's promises of reward and His threats of judgment. Though you know God's will, you cannot be moved to do it. You cannot be awakened from your sleep to get out and do the Master's work. Your life is characterized by Dorothy Day's words, the slugger, she says, believes in nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive only because there is nothing for which to die. Become unfeeling, become insensitive, become hardened over such that the things of God can no longer move us into action. And when that's the case, as the passage so clearly indicates, you are storing up wrath for yourself. And I know that's hard, but that's what the Word says. The Lord's threats are not empty. He says, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And the slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of flogging will receive but a few. Now, will the disobedience actually be dismembered and receive many lashes? No. The Lord is speaking parabolically here. But that does not mean that there will not be punishment. There will. Now, the exact nature of that punishment is not for us to say. But what we do know is that each one will be rendered according to to their deeds. According to the course of our life in this world, we will be rewarded, whether good or bad. Therefore, in light of judgment, in light of that day when we have to stand before God, we are presented with a better way. The way of diligence and preparedness. The Lord furnishes us 
furnishes us with two images. Verse 35, he says, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Now the phrase, be dressed in readiness, is literally translated, let your loins be girded. And both images, a man tying his robes around his waist and a lamp kept lit, convey the idea of readiness for action. The opposite, ungirded robes and an unlit lamp make it clear. Rather than scrambling in the darkness to trim the wick and find oil for the lamp, a disciple's lamp must be kept burning throughout the night. And rather than stumbling to gird up your robes as the thief is already upon you, a disciple's loins must remain girded at all times. A disciple must be ready for action. The master will indeed be a long time coming, but that is no reason for sloth and self-indulgence. Rather, it is all the more reason to be prepared and alert. We don't know when he's coming, therefore we must always be prepared and ready. Paul's counsel to the church at Thessalonica is much the same. He instructs them, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2-6. through 6, You yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of darkness, not of night, nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. See the resonance between these two passages. The exact counsel, be alert and sober. Because we are sons of the light and sons of the day, therefore we must act in accordance with our identity. Not sleeping and drinking as those in darkness, but rather alert and sober. Thus, church, with our lamps lit and our loins girded, we will not be overtaken and caught unsuspecting when the day of the Lord comes. But what does such alertness and soberness look like? St. Paul continues, verse 8, But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Notice the triad. Faith, hope, and love. A person who is ready for the Lord's arrival is a person who is working in faith, laboring in love, and made steadfast in hope. That is, their faith is not merely self-professed, but is preceded by good works. Their hope is not merely wishful thinking, but it issues forth in stability and consistency. And their love is not merely in word only, but also in deed. And so such a person who walks in faith, hope, and love will be prepared to open the door when the master knocks. 
not necessarily the one who's into all the signs of the times and who's trying to read every geopolitical affair, rather the person who is occupied in faith, hope, and love. They will be prepared to open the door when the Lord knocks. And because they're prepared, because they're awake through the night waiting, they will be blessed. Three separate times the Lord speaks of the blessedness of those who are prepared. Verse 37, it says, Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on alert when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table, and he will come and wait on them. And then again in verse 38, Whether he comes in the second watch or even the third, and so finds them, finds them so, blessed are those slaves. And then lastly in verse 43, Blessed is the slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Those who have been waiting upon their master, occupied in faith and hope and love, are blessed because the reward that awaits them. If the disobedient are given many lashes, will not the, diso- will not the obedient rather receive many blessings? Indeed, they will. And the Lord breaks their blessings under two headings. Verse 44, he says, Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Jesus' words here are very reminiscent of the parable of the talents. In that parable, each slave is given a sum of money to invest while his master is away. To one five talents to another two talents, and to another one talent. Now the slave given five talents, he went out and traded them and got five, and, and, and gained five more. And the slave given two talents did the same and gained two more. But the slave given one talent went and buried it in the ground. Now things, of course, did not go well for the slave who buried his master's money. But for the other two, the story turned out much different. The master returned. He saw their good stewardship and said, Well done, good and faithful slave. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. You've been faithful with a few. I will now reward you with many. So their faithful and prudent stewardship over the things given to them on earth, translated into them being given much more to oversee and rule in heaven. That is, their faithfulness in this age was rewarded proportionally in the age to come. As the Lord says in another place, he who is faithful in, a very, little, in very little things is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing, is also unrighteous in much. Therefore, the slave who has been busy doing the master's will will be rewarded by being put in charge of all his possessions. So what you're faithful with here on earth, or according to the proportion of your faithfulness here on earth, you will be rewarded with more in heaven. And again, he will receive all his possessions, will be in charge of all his possessions. That is, in some way, in some fashion, which 
I don't think any of us can really say, those who remain faithful will be given authority and charge over the kingdom of God. And Luke chapter 22, verses 29 through 30, the Lord says to the disciples, Just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and then this, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Authority, ownership even, stewardship um, to the disciples. And the same promise is extended to us. Exhorting the church at Thyatira, the Lord says, Revelation chapter twenty-six, verses chapter two, verses twenty-six and twenty-seven. He says, "He who overcomes, and who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as I also have received authority from my Father." In other words, those who persevere through the night, those who do not become lazy, those who do not become self-indulgent, but remain prepared, will be rewarded with the splendor and glory and authority of the King of kings and the Lord of lords himself. But secondly, and lastly, and we'll wind down with this, the reward of the faithful slave will, will be to be served by the master. Look at verse 37. It says, Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on alert when he comes. They're blessed. He says, Truly I say to you, he will gird himself, that is the master, he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table, and he will come up and wait on them. Envisioned behind the Lord's parable, I believe, is the kingdom of God. And those words would have us to believe, as unbelievable as it sounds, that the slaves will sit at the table in the master's position, roadrunner, while the master serves and waits upon the slaves. So the reward of their service is to be served. And again, maybe that isn't as unbelievable as it sounds, because in the upper room, And the Last Supper, the Master did exactly that. He took off his robes, he girded himself with a towel, and he lowered himself and he washed his disciples' feet. The Master served the slaves. He took care of his servants. And is it too far-fetched to envision something similar in the kingdom of God? I'm not sure, but these words will be fulfilled. The master will reward his servants by becoming a servant to them. And in a sense, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, which is the culmination of our service, in a sense, the Lord already has served us. The master came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That is, on the cross... He became our servant for our good and for our salvation. He served us, the Master did, by giving up His body to be broken and His blood to be spilled. That in partaking of His sacrifice, we might have eternal life. That we might be able to sit with Him in the kingdom of God, eating 
drinking, and being merry. So thus, as we prepare to partake the Lord's Supper, let us remember, as the Scripture says, that these elements are not empty symbols, but a means of grace through which we fellowship with the Lord Himself. Is not the cup of blessing we bless a participation in the body of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a participation in the body of Christ? And so as we partake, remember that he's, as He served us then, so He serves us now. Let's go ahead and pray.